We'll take your copy of the Word of God and open with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. We'll read in briefly here from verses 3 through 12. Our text for this morning will be verses 3 through 5. Well, last week we began this new series in this new letter of 1 Peter, a new letter to us in terms of its preaching where we considered how we are addressed by the apostle as elect exiles and considered that we are those who are rejected here and yet we are chosen by the Father. We are in hardship here away from home and yet we have a great hope of a homeland. And we are able to stand firm in unfriendly times because we stand firm in the grace of God and there is plenty of it. And this letter is for us in an age and in a place where we might say there is soft persecution. It's good to make a distinction. Read this just this past week, past day in fact. Mindy Bells, who's a senior editor at World Magazine, don't know much of her, but she appears to do a good bit of reporting and research in travel in the Middle East, posts this on Twitter. Afghan-American church leaders met today and I spoke to several with tears and sobs they recounted as they recounted what they're hearing from family now in Taliban-controlled areas who one week ago lived free. A person who works with house church networks in Afghanistan reports that its leaders received letters last night from the Taliban warning them that they know where they are and what they are doing. The leaders say they aren't going anywhere. And so it begins. And so we pray for our brothers and sisters, and we do what exactly we should do and what they are doing this morning, and that is looking to the Lord in his word and considering the question, what do exiles need to hear? Well, let's read together to hear exactly what God would say in answer to that question to us this morning. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 12. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who have preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Well, when we consider what elect exiles need to hear, the backdrop of that situation of our Afghani brothers and sisters is helpful because it presses the question on us, what precisely do we need to hear in our hard times on account of Christ of any kind? Do we need to hear a charge, a command, and a call? Well, that would be fair. There are temptations that loom for Christians in hard times. Do we need to hear a warning? That would be fair. There are dangers about us spiritually. 
do we need to hear a word of sympathy? Well, we could imagine Peter could grant that. He has had hard times of his own. He was enduring the very hard times that his readers were enduring as exiles in this age away from home. But what is it apparently that elect exiles need to hear? Well, we may think we know what we need to hear, and we may find out what that is when we're speaking to a brother or sister in a hard time. And any of those things that I mentioned aren't off limits or inappropriate in the right circumstance. But it occurs to us when we read this paragraph of Peter's, what he chose to say, what apparently he thought they needed to hear before they heard anything else, what apparently the Holy Spirit believes we need to hear before we hear anything else. And what is that? Well, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It is, in the first place, an invitation to worship God. Before we hear anything else, we need an invitation to praise our triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. In fact, verse 3 here, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, looks like the end of a sentence because of that exclamation point, but in the original language, we don't have an end of a sentence until the end of verse 12, which is exactly why we read the entirety of verses 3 through 12 at the head of our sermon. And yet what's interesting is that verse, the beginning of verse 3 is an invitation to praise, even Peter praising God before us and in that calling us into God's worship, but the rest of it is Stirring us up to praise with reasons to praise God. In fact, it concerns our salvation. You look at verse 5 here. Those who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 9, he speaks of those who are obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then verse 11 Speaking of the prophets who prophesied, they were inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And he speaks concerning, verse 10, this salvation about which the prophets spoke. Well, there are lots of words we might grab, but it appears that, that salvation, salvation is what Peter is speaking about in this long sentence. In a word, it's about salvation. And he's stirring us up with the truth concerning our salvation in order that we might be stirred up to praise God who has brought salvation to us. He is inviting us into God's worship through encouragement in our salvation. And we are stirred up to worship the God of heaven by hearing about our salvation precisely because Our salvation is his glorious work. Well, we're going to spend three weeks in this paragraph. And I always map a series out before we get into it. And then sometimes I'm six to eight hours into that first sermon and we already need to make it two. Well, this was going to be two sermons, this set of 10 or so verses, and we're going to make it three and I'll explain to you why as the weeks unfold. But this morning, our attention's on verses three through five. Where should we begin in reflecting on our great salvation? Where does Peter, where does Peter begin? Well, he begins in that place where we are most tempted to be discouraged, to be distracted, to be anxious, and that is our future. Jesus spoke no little about the future and comforted and calmed our anxieties concerning it with the promises of God. And here, Peter begins where we are often terribly distracted and distraught, thinking about what lies before us, either in the immediate term in this life and what he says is relevant for that, or way down the road when we meet God and what he says is relevant for that. Well, what's the first thing we need to hear 
about the first matter of importance, our salvation. Well, the first thing Peter speaks to us concerning is this. He says that our future is not in our hands. The first thing you need to know about your future is that it is not in your hands, Christian. Rightly, uh, parents, we motivate our children in their schoolwork and in their lives to show up on time, to answer honestly for any number of reasons, including God's glory, but also because their future depends on it. Their marriage depends on it. Their future employment depends on things like honesty and hard work and a good plan. And um, there is more that factors into any of our given futures, but in a really big way, we're saying it, you decide. Things can go well or they can go really poorly. You decide. And employers, you might lay before somebody a a track, a possible path in the course of their employment if they're successful and faithful and dutiful. Educators with students, school is starting. No doubt you're giving your kids a syllabus, some of you. Others, you're telling them what's to come and you're outlining a path before them, what it will take to get an A, a B, a C, or D, or an F if we still do Fs. Now, there are a number of things that get highlighted in these important conversations. Uh, our initiative gets highlighted. Our, our character gets highlighted. Uh, our ability will get highlighted. Well, what does Peter have to say about these things? He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So who holds our future? God holds our future. And that is a safe place for it to be. The initiative is his. He has caused us to be born again. This whole paragraph is about our salvation and it's about us and it's for us. It's to us. But here in verse 3, there's nothing that we are doing. We are being done to. We are being acted upon. He has caused us. What has he done? He caused us to be born again. That says something about the situation that we were in. We were dead and that's what the scripture says to you and to me, apart from Jesus. If we haven't in faith come to him to receive all that he offers, we're dead in our sin. And a dead person is a helpless person. A dead person is a person without hope. But he has caused us to be born again. We've all some interaction with, experience with death and the dead. And this is an apt image to convey something to us about our spiritual condition, though we walk about this earth. We are born in Adam, in sin, condemned to hell, and dead in our trespasses, the scripture says. And that's not a good spot. But there is something that can be done. And the first move in getting that done... A transformation of our situation is God's move who causes us to be born again. The initiative in terms of our future, the initiative, it's his. Well, the character is his too. Why would he do this? Well, we don't turn to him. Those who are spiritually dead in their sins don't wake up one day and say, you know what? I think I was wrong about God. That doesn't happen if God doesn't move. Why does God make that move? Well, he makes it. According to his great mercy. That's why he makes it. So your situation was one of having been dead in your sins, Christian. But because of the great mercy of God towards you and not because of you, he's made you alive in Christ. His mercy. We were, we were dead if we'd been made born again. Well, if, if he's made us born again because of his great mercy... And what is mercy but not giving us what we deserve? 
No, we were, Scripture says, the children of wrath. Because of our sin, we were dead in sin and we were destined for hell, for God's eternal judgment over us. And it was perfectly just, perfectly righteous. No, but because of his great mercy, because of his initiative and his character, our future situation is not what it would otherwise be. And the ability is his too. The power is his. How is this even possible? Well, it's possible through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our very different transformed future is possible because of what God has done in Christ in raising him from the dead. Jesus' death and resurrection opens up, if you will, a portal to a whole new creation, a whole new world. And those who were joined to Jesus, who died and was raised, who were joined to Jesus by faith, who hear this word this morning and say, I believe it, yes, are themselves born again. We have a living hope, in other words, because we have a living Lord. Now, Karl Marx, I don't think I'll mention him every sermon, but it's relevant here, I did last week, would say that, and many would, uh, that religion is the opiate of the masses. Have you heard that? It serves a purpose. It's nonsense. It's used to manipulate and control people. Visions of heaven, promises of eternal life, Oh, just look at us. And maybe you're on the outside, although in the room today, looking in, and you relate with that. And there's people you like in the room, and maybe you can even respect what happens in the name of Jesus and religion and the church. Um, But this matter of heaven and eternal life is a really nice thought and something to help us get along and to get through life in this hard age. But it is really just a nice thought thought. Maybe something like when one of our kids falls and hurts themselves and everyone in the room cheers (laughs) so that they don't collapse emotionally. You know, you can kind of tell that they're not really hurt, but they're shook up. And so everyone knows just to to be happy for a minute and and they'll come out of it very quickly. Is that kind of what this is like? Where Peter's writing to elect exiles and the elect part is sort of a a bit of cheerleading. And then this right here is just, um, it's just a bit of clapping and cheering and celebrating to, to help make it all a little bit easier. Only roots it in real history. This living hope that's in our hearts that we have, this internal transformation that we speak of concerning the new birth and being born again, the great mercy that we say we've received, Those are more than just thoughts. They are real because they are rooted in a real event. All of these come to us through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is real history. The book that we read and the Savior in whom we believe is real. And so we profess and confess it. This is not a matter of cheering and hype for those who need a little bit of medicine to get through the day. This isn't therapeutic. This is theological truth. No, it really is true. Our future is not in our hands. If you're a Christian, you can say that God is the the one who takes the initiative in this relationship. He is the one on whose character this whole thing depends, not on ours. And it's his power and his ability that will see to it because it has raised Jesus from the dead. Our future is not in our hands. And that's really good news. So be encouraged. There is a future for you. There is a future for you. And whatever tomorrow holds, however hard today is, your future future, the one that apparently really counts, the one that Peter is holding out to you and me this morning, That one doesn't depend on you. That one does not depend on you. No, we can 
We can worship God for our salvation because our salvation is the work of God. And if it was a work of you and me, then it wouldn't redound to worship in heaven, but boasting before one another. But of course it doesn't, and that's why we're here this morning. So what's the first thing we need to hear about that matter of first importance, our salvation? Well, it's that, it's that your future, friends, is not in your hands. That's the right place to start. Well, what's it like? Well, that's the obvious next place we would want to go. And Peter knows to go right there because we start talking about our future and now we're all curious as to what the future holds. Can you describe it for me, Peter? Well, maybe he'll try. They move from reflecting on how our future is not in our hands. And now we see that our future is inexpressibly great in verses four. It's inexpressibly great. It is to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and un, unfading. Now, the apostle Peter was rarely, if he was ever, at a loss for words. But even though he's writing to them about heaven here, he really was at a loss for words. And yet, even when he was at a loss for words, specific words to positively describe heaven, of course, Peter still had something to say. He had other words to grab, words to rule out what it's not like. Did you see that? It's to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. What's that game? Clue? Doesn't have red hair? Dink, 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 dink. And you can sort of process of elimination. Okay, so what is it like? Well, it's not perishable, it's not defiled, and it's not fading. And we're getting close. We can thank Peter for those words, even though he doesn't give us maybe all that we would want about heaven. So what is it not like? Well, it's not like food. It doesn't perish. Now, there is some food that doesn't perish. Like those fries on the sidewalk that were there for three months as I walked from my home to my house between about 2010 to 2011. And the ants never touched them. Those were McDonald's fries. And, uh, and I'll never forget it. And I, I'll eat them every now and then. But I always think about what I saw on the ground and how the ants weren't even interested. I'm not sure they're food. That's not to pick on McDonald's specifically. But there are, there are some foods, you know, you wonder if you should put it in your body. You, the memes about, you know, should we really pray for this? Or like you pray for it, but it doesn't count. You just shouldn't put it in your, in your person. Well, food perishes along with about everything else in this life. It's around for a while and then it's gone. We perish. Our bodies perish for all that they can do. We just got done watching the Olympics. It's amazing what our bodies can do. They've all got a clock. It wasn't supposed to be that way when God made us in the garden, but under the curse of sin, oh, it's that way. These bodies only last so long. And there's a reason you don't have 80-year-old Olympians, as our bodies are at peak at certain times and different sports will lend themselves to different little age brackets. But eventually our bodies decay and perish, just like food, like everything else. In heaven, it's not like that. It's not like that. It's not like so many of our own motives and so many of our own good works, tainted as they are with sin, imperfect, undefiled, heaven will be. No, even the best things in this life for us, even that best Olympian, even the tens across the board, that Olympian knows it wasn't exactly perfect. There is no such thing as perfectly perfect in this age. There's not anything that's perfectly perfect. Now, imperfections abound of any kind. And heaven doesn't have any of those. It's not like that. It's not defiled. There are no impurities. Now, it's not like the paint on your car, your car which heats up under the sun and the paint fades and you've got to do, you know, half an hour research yesterday on my couch and researching what you might do about the van and the hood sat outside for a decade in the 
New Mexico sun and didn't wax it quite enough to keep up with the, with the heat. There are a bunch of things in this life. They fade and paint's a good illustration because it's a color and it actually loses its color. It fades into nothing. It fades. In heaven, it's not like that at all. It doesn't fade. No. Heaven is imperishable. Friends, there's no end to it. It's unfading. There are no impurities in it. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And here's my heart, oh, take and seal it and seal it for thy courts above. And oh, that day when freed from sinning, when I shall see thy lovely face and full arrayed in blood-washed linen, how I'll sing thy sovereign grace. We just sang that this morning. That is about this. There's no impurities in heaven. And that must mean that you and I will be free from impurities too because we're not getting in if God doesn't fix us all the way and he will fix you all the way. It's imperishable, it's undefiled and it's, it's unfading. It's never going to lose its shine. We recently got a Nintendo Switch and a friend said in pitching it to us, I just got to be careful not to play it too much together. Law of diminishing returns. You know, it's a little less exciting over time if you play it too much. Like everything. Like everything. Heaven will be immediately better than anything we've ever known or experienced. And it will never lose any of its shine or its potency or its beauty or its luster. We may suppose it'll only get better forever. So can you see how Peter is addressing his exiled, homeless, away from home readers? He's overwhelming them with a vision of their very, very great future. So you and I can be encouraged. You know, I wish I had better words to describe heaven for you And parents, your little ones may ask you from time to time, what is heaven like? And you can simply say, sweetheart, I can tell you what it's not like. (laughs) And now you got three points. It's imperishable, it's undefiled and unfading. And you can pick whatever words you want that will get that idea across a little better. You can draw from their little life experience in the last half hour or the last day or the last year. Illustrations abound to communicate to them that everything good about this age, it'll be better, and everything bad about this age will be gone. And for the most part, and most of the time, that's all God is happy to share with us. And it's enough for us, and it's enough for Peter's readers today. It's good news that we don't have other words. It's good news that it's not like so many of the bad things about this place. But there is one word in this little list I haven't explored yet. And it isn't one of these imperishable, undefiled, or unfading words. He says it's an, it's an inheritance. That's what, that's what our future is. It's an, it's an inheritance. And when you think of an inheritance, you think of something that involves waiting. We can relate with that. And you think of something that involves wealth. And that's what we have coming for us. Uh, We're waiting for something and it involves a certain kind of wealth. Well, this raises a good question that we might ruminate on for a moment. And that is, what is this inheritance? And are there any other clues anywhere else in the passage of the Bible from even this imagery here that will give us more insight besides simply what heaven is not like? And yes, we do have insight. We have insight from the Old Testament You'll remember that the land promised to Abraham and his children was called an inheritance. And they moved toward it and they waited on it. And there is something important and peculiar about one tribe, the Levites, which might stick in your own memory if you've read Deuteronomy or heard this insight before. 
But in Deuteronomy chapter 18, we read this concerning the Levites. While each of the other tribes had a portion of the land, the land of the inheritance from God, the Levitical priests, all the tribe of Levi, shall have no portion or inheritance with Israel. Ouch. They shall eat the Lord's food offering as their inheritance. They shall have no inheritance among their brothers. Ouch. And these are the guys who lead the community in worship and all of that. And they get the short end of the stick. Come on. One more line. The Lord is their inheritance as he promised them. So what is our inheritance? Well, I can tell you what it's not. Then I can say something about what it is. And what is it? Our inheritance, friend, is the Lord. Our inheritance is the Lord. It is seeing him. It is knowing him more perfectly. It is being in his presence. And the extent to which you're right with God and freed from the power of sin and lost in the truth about him, the extent to which you have tasted heaven in this age and said, that's it. That's the experience of knowing and being known by God. So to whatever extent you have known God through his word, you can multiply that times a thousand and a million. It will never end. He is forever ours to explore. And he gives himself to us in his word this morning. He's given himself to us in Christ through the resurrection of the dead. He is the one true and living God. And that is one reason why our hope is a living hope. Well, as soon as we get talking about wealth and riches and an inheritance, we might just as well start talking about security. Uh, How we can know it's safe and how we can know that we can get to it. Because it doesn't well matter if it's out there if we don't have access to it at the end of the day. Recently threw a little bit of money at uh, crypto. Uh, You know, get good advice before you throw too much at that. Um, But play around. Uh, (laughs) And Elon Musk tweeted, I went into an elders meeting 23 23 hours after uh, I decided to try a little bit and Christy and I agreed on this. And then I walked out of the elders meeting and it was like a straight line down. Like, oh, what happened there? (laughs) I've never seen that before. Elon Musk tweeted and it tanked. Uh, And so I deleted deleted my little app that I used to do this, but I have the password written down. And I thought I'd better better keep track of the password. I better remember where to get back into the thing to be able to, not too much will be lost if I can't. But the point is, you know, whether it's a key the location, the passcode, you want to be able to get into the wealth to access the riches. They may be safe and secure all by themselves forever, but if you can't get to them, if you lose something, if you forget, uh, you're, in, you're in a good amount of trouble. So security is the next topic rightly on our mind, and it is the next subject that Peter moves to naturally, and his encouragement toward us. We've seen that our future is not in our hands. Our future is inexpressibly great. And our future is perfectly safe. It's perfectly safe. Verse five, start a touch before that. It's kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We have two locks on our front door. They've always been there. I probably need some more. Our locks are there to keep uh, certain people out. And these days our locks are there, especially the high one that's harder to turn, uh, to keep certain family members in the house. And before we had the locks, forgive me if I've said this in a sermon already, we did find our babies in the cul-de-sac playing with their toys they drug out there. It took two minutes for them to get out there. And as soon as they were able to pop the lock, they found their way to that place we tend to hang out in the afternoons. 
And um, we found another kid in, in the, the mulch a day after that. And so we've talked about a really, really high lock, a lock to keep some people out, a lock to keep some family members in. This, this security that God has, has implemented on our wealth, on our inheritance, on our living hope is a double form of security. You notice that? It is kept in heaven for you. And we are kept and guarded for it. The guarding goes both ways. So let's meditate on this for a few minutes. Who is guarding our inheritance? Peter says it's kept in heaven. Well, that says something about who's guarding it. What does it mean that it's kept in heaven, but that it is kept by God? Heaven is where God is. And that's why this earth will be a new heavens and a new earth one day. Because there God will fill it all. His glory will cover the whole earth like the waters cover the seas. Now, who's guarding our inheritance? Who's guarding our, our hope? Who's guarding heaven for us? Well, God is. He's the one who made everything. He's the one who promises it to us. He's the one who raised Jesus from the dead. He's a good guardian and he's got it. So as we reflected on all we're given and who kicks this whole thing off for, on our behalf, who the cause of our salvation is, we consider its safety and its security, the kind of thing that we worry about in earthly terms down here. And there's nothing to worry about. It's perfectly secure. It is kept in heaven for you. It's why he says it. It's to encourage our hope so that we might know how secure our salvation is for us. Our future, your future, as uncertain as your job or the stock market may be, your future in the presence of God before him forever, your inheritance is perfectly safe. It's kept in heaven for you. Well, who's guarding us? It says we're guarded. Who's guarding us? Same guardian. You, now we should talk about you for a second. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you. And what about you? Because that's the next thing on my mind. What about me? What if I don't get there? What if I lose the password? The illustration breaks down. You know, the problem with us is that we would leave the faith. The problem with us is that we're prone to wander. So we show up and sing these songs. We're not afraid to admit that to God because we're crying out to him in song. Come thou fount of every blessing and tune my heart to sing your praise because I need your help to sing your praise. I need your help every Sunday to keep singing your praise. It's a great song to start the service off with. Sometimes we're more overstated and sometimes understated on this, but we always begin by calling ourselves into worship. And that particular song gets it done. It's calling God to make us to worship. It's a great place to start. Tune my heart to sing thy praise. No, God is our guardian and he guards us by his power. That same power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you and me. And it says he guards us by his power through faith, through faith. So do you believe this morning? Because that's the first indication of something that you and I do, if you will. And even that, according to scripture, is God's doing. But we respond to this word about Jesus and his death and resurrection by believing, by having faith. That's what that means. By receiving the promise of salvation without trying to add anything to it. By acknowledging that our salvation is wholly God's work and we bring nothing to the table. Because apart from faith, there is no being born again. There is no inexpressibly great future. There is only inexpressibly terrible sorrow forever. And apart from faith, there is no security for us. And so it's not his main point, but it is there. And it's a little nod to all of us to be sure that we are in the faith. 
So are you in the faith this morning? If you're here, that's a good sign. You came for some reason. God brought you here and you've been hearing his word. And I suppose you'll either harden yourself against it. That happens. We'll pray for you that God breaks you so that you'll receive it. And maybe that would even be this day. And if that's the case, you find yourself today believing for the first time and you respond in faith to this message that Jesus has come to live a perfect life in your place. He was the only impure one and he came to cleanse you from all your sins, to take all your guilt away. And he was raised from the dead so that one day death won't have its hold on you, that you can have life eternal. Do you believe this and it's the first time? Tap a Christian friend or come tap me on the shoulder and we'd love to talk with you and pray with you about these things. God is at work to save all the time. And he uh, saved me and he saved so many in this room. Yes, we've known mercy. And if you have faith today and believe, then you are the object of God's mercy and you were dead. But if you're believing, that's because God has made you alive and you are hopeless without without Christ, but we have a living hope. Now, this matter of, of God's power and our faith represents one of many tensions that uh, we as Christians who embrace the word of God embrace. I mean, which is it? How are we going to see ourselves safe, safely to heaven well, it's not by giving up and forgetting and walk away, walking away from God because after all, he'll guard us by his power. And it's not by trusting in our faith because he has no power to keep us and it's up to us. Which is it, his power or is it our faith? Well, just to acknowledge the tension, it is both. It is both. The answer is yes to that question. And it's actually in getting this matter of faith wrong that so many of us, and we may not even know this is why, are suffering under so much discouragement in our earthly exiled journey. Let me reflect for us on a couple ways that that's the case. The way that we understand faith wrong. We may understand faith to be a past thing only or, or mainly. It's a past thing. When we think of faith, we talk about a point of faith or when we came to faith. And it's true that we come to faith and that there is a moment in time, a point in time, in which we move from darkness to light. It's not wrong. It's even biblical to speak in that terms. But when we think of faith as a past thing only or mainly, we will tend to focus on God's work in us in the past and to miss what he's doing right now and all that he's promised to do in the future. We'll start focusing on our faith itself and not on the object of the faith or all that he has promised us that we're to believe by faith. We'll obsess about the point in time in which we came to faith. But faith here we see is an ongoing matter. We're guarded through faith in an ongoing way. And he doesn't stop to say, and by the way, I know that faith is a point in time, but what I mean by, no, it's a given. Faith is something that we we begin to believe and we continue to believe. It's ongoing and it is enduring. And if we want to be assured that we have believed at a point in time in the past, the task at hand is to consider where we have, whether we have faith in the present. And if we want to ensure that we have faith in the future, it will be to keep believing now. In fact, in order to keep believing now, we'll have to fix our faith on the things that Jesus has promised us in the future, which is part of what Peter's doing right here. He's nurturing their faith by holding out the promises that they're to believe by faith. And I pray you're believing them this morning. So we can tend to focus on the past. And this can happen in our understanding of salvation too. Watch it here in verse five, he says, we're being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. We may be tempted to focus on salvation as something in the past only. We think of Ephesians 2, for by grace you've been saved through faith. And it's not of your own doing, it's the gift of God, not a result of works so that no one may boast. And this is faith that you've been, been, been saved by. Or 1 Corinthians 1.8. 
The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, are being saved, it is, it is the power of God. Once you have eyes to see this, you'll see it all over. In fact, you'll start to see that the way that the Bible speaks about salvation is mostly in future terms. And what these Christians need and what you and I need as exiles in this world is not so much to be comforted that we had faith in the past, that God saved us back then, but that God will save us in the future from all of this. Can you see how a fixation of, with salvation and with faith in the past can cloud out your ability to see what God's doing now and even to hold on now or to see what he holds out to you by way of promise to believe by faith for the future. So have a well-rounded faith and a well-rounded salvation. For this is what Peter gives to us. A faith that is past, yes, but is ongoing and a faith that is enduring. There's a couple different ways we find ourselves discouraged on this topic of faith. And the first way is that we consider it to be a past thing, mainly or even only. And the second way we can go wrong in our conception of faith is to, is to think that it's faith that saves us. Faith that saves us. Even this week, our staff had a great discussion on this topic, working through a book on conversion. We work through different books and it kicks up all kinds of good conversations. And this one was encouraging. They always are. And we think, oh, faith saves us. Well, does faith save us? When God looks at you to welcome you into his presence forever, is it going to be faith that you bring to the table that cancels out and makes up for all of your sins? Or is it Jesus' blood and righteousness that saves you? Faith is merely holding on to him. If we think that faith saves us, we'll tend to focus on our faith. And it won't be long before we realize that anything that emerges from within us is imperfect, undefiled, and at times fading. We'll sing, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, and wonder if we're a Christian. Well, the Bible gives us passages, including 1 John, which we're studying soon with Dan Kruver, uh, to evaluate whether we're in the faith. But the overwhelming agenda of the Apostle Peter here isn't to scare us or to discourage us or to focus us on faith. It's just a word along the way. He focuses on Jesus and God's work and salvation and the resurrection from the dead. No, we don't want to focus on anything that is ours, but rather the one that saves us. Faith is an instrument. That's a way to think about it. It's, the, it's a means. It's a way of receiving, but it is not the cause. And it is not a matter of merit. So when you think of faith, think the next thought, Jesus. Don't stay on faith forever. When you think of faith, don't, don't look only to the past and don't look only at faith. Look to Christ. And by looking at Christ and by hearing this call to bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus and this, this reflection on his great mercy and the great salvation he's promised and his great power to guard us, all you've got to do is hear that and meditate on that. And if you're in the faith, you'll believe all the more. But to focus with blinders on, on your faith is to put your attention in the wrong place. And so we say appropriately, we're saved by grace. Grace saves us. God saves us by his grace. But it's through faith right here. Just like the apostle Paul, Peter We're protected by God's power being guarded through faith. And faith isn't just a a thing that gets us into salvation in the past, but is that ongoing and enduring thing that gets us to salvation in the future, which is why we keep showing up here, isn't it? Which is why we keep praying, why we keep preaching, and why we keep believing. So be encouraged today. That is a meditation on the cause of our salvation, the quality of our salvation, and the security of our salvation. You and I, friends, have a living hope. We have a living hope because we have a living Lord 
who really was in real history raised from the dead by the Father. And all of this is on account of God's glorious mercy toward us. And this is the first thing that you need to hear. A word about your future as you consider life in this age as a rejected and maligned exile. So by way of application, very simply, what this means for you and me personally is that this is how we need to talk to ourselves when we're discouraged. This is what elect exiles need to hear. So maybe memorize verses three through five. And when you're discouraged and when this world feels like it's all there is, read about your imperishable, undefiled and unfading inheritance that is the face of the Lord himself that is kept in heaven for you, even as you are kept for it through faith because God is powerful and his mercy is great. Let this be the way that we talk to ourselves and let this be the way that we speak to each other. So you have a brother or a sister, we're meeting for shepherding groups this afternoon. In a matter of hardship, there's a place for sympathy, there's a place for a warning, there's a place for a charge. There's a place for all of that. And there is an important and even first place for a very simple and beautiful reminder of all that God has done for us by his mercy and all that he promises us that we can't even describe with words and how great is his power to keep us all the way there. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a word that we need that we didn't even know we needed this morning. But it's a word concerning our future. And it's the word that our Afghani brothers and sisters in house churches that are trembling right now for good earthly reasons. It's a word that they are holding fast to and believing and that they must and that we must to endure hardship in this age on account of Jesus. No, we're promised by Jesus that we'll be blessed if we're persecuted on account of him. And this is even an expansion on that and we thank you for it. Convince us as we sing now and as we go out today and as we speak to one another the word in our homes this afternoon and evening. Convince us all the more fully of our encouragement in your salvation so that we might all the more faithfully praise you for it. In Christ's name we pray, amen.